Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. This is God's word. You may be seated. Inside of the announcement sheet, you'll find uh, an outline that you can use as we go through this uh, this study this morning. It's going to be uh, really not just couched in one verse, the Hebrews chapter 2 passage that David just read, but we're going to really spend some time throughout the New Testament this morning thinking about uh, spiritual warfare. Uh, and uh, before we have our prayer, before we get into this study, uh, one of our, our young ladies is going to be baptized this morning. Anna West, the daughter of uh, Shane and Shannon West, is going to be baptized. And so we're going to give you a heads up. We're going to have a welcome circle at the end of our assembly to welcome this, uh, this new young sister into our church family and hope that, uh, that you will be here to encourage her at that time. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, how grateful we are that you see fit in your love and righteousness to impart to us a, a, a new life. And this life, Father, is not something that we were able to, to bring about or construct on our own, but it's, it's a gift that comes from you to us. And we pray, Father, that in receiving this gift of a new life, that we realize that it's, it's really more than just being forgiven of our sins, that you are saving us unto yourself. And you, in this, this new life, Father, are helping us to become the human beings that you always wanted us to be. And so to this end, Father, we're asking you as we study this word this morning, that you will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it in such a way that that all of our attention and all of our affections are, are turned towards you and that we continually find ourselves being healed by your presence. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus and all the church said. What do you think of when you hear, and what do you think maybe the community hears or thinks of when they hear the words spiritual warfare? spiritual warfare do they sometimes or maybe even us in this room do, when we hear the word spiritual warfare do we think of snake handlers you know from time to time uh, I, I know that there are some of you that that actually run into people and are asked this question as i am you know what is the macarthur park church of christ like you guys aren't a bunch of snake handlers are you well the answer is no uh, you know quite frankly we're not snake handlers we're snake killers or maybe when you hear the word spiritual warfare, maybe it conjures up the idea of the big revivals, the big faith healing revivals. Maybe you've seen these on television, and it's always about demons, and it's always about some kind of uh, connection spiritually back to a demonic world. Or maybe it's something, uh, something a little bit simpler. Maybe what you think of in the term spiritual warfare is an angel on one side and a devil on the other. Or maybe just the whole notion of spiritual warfare just kind of goes over your head. Not that you don't understand it, but that you think that in this spiritual world, or this materialistic world, if you can't see it, then it doesn't exist. 
Well, there's a quote by C.S. Lewis in the book, The Screwtape Letters. The Screwtape Letters, I think, one of the best books ever written, but especially in the last 100 years, to help us to understand the nature of evil, the, the nature of the kingdom of darkness, how temptation takes place, how subtle and cunning Satan can be in leading us into temptation and leading us astray. He says in the introduction to this book, he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to believe in their existence. The other, one is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. But readers are advised to remember that the devil is a liar. End of quote. You know, one of the things that we learn from the world around us when it comes especially to warfare is that you have to be prepared. You have to be able to think in certain kinds of ways to be able to approach warfare successfully. In Carlisle, Pennsylvania, the, the United States Army has a war college. And the mission of the war college is stated as this to prepare selected military, civilian, and international leaders for the responsibilities of strategic leadership, educate current and future leaders on the development and employment of land power in a joint multinational and interagency environment, conduct research and publish on national security and military strategy, and engage in activities in support of the Army's strategic communication efforts. That's U.S. Army Regulation 10-44. In other words, the, the war college for the Army exists to teach folks, both in the military and outside of the military, how to wage war in every facet of war successfully. To understand the nature of it, to understand the communication that needs to happen, the, 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 uh, the, the strength of the land power that you have. It's about understanding how to wage a war successfully and to win it. Now the Bible has that same kind of intent when it talks to us about the spiritual warfare that we face on a daily basis because we live in a fallen world. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, we are told to be sober-minded. We are to be alert, that is to keep our eyes open, to be sober-minded, to think rightly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth that is inundated, like most of those churches were in the first century, with with with, with um, sort of this, this, this dark influence that was trying to destroy it. And one of the things that he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is that we must not be unaware of his schemes. That is, the schemes and the, and the strategy of Satan. And so in understanding the spiritual warfare that the Bible is pretty blunt and, and frank about, there are three, three points about understanding that war that we want to make from Scripture this morning. The first is the Bible teaches that spiritual warfare is real. It's real. Spiritual warfare is as old as creation itself. You know as well as I do that after the first big story chronologically after the, the Bible talks about the creation is that the Bible talks about the fall of creation. There is this being in Genesis chapter 3 that comes into the garden. He's in the form of a serpent who confronts the first humans with what they believe to be true about God, about the truth that they believe to be true about God in all of life and in all of the universe. 
And they succumb to that temptation. They are expelled from the garden. And the warfare spreads to their children. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, there's this verse, a very interesting verse that we sometimes skip right over. But in, when God is confronting the first humans and the serpent about what has happened in the garden, he talks about that there's going to be this enmity or there's going to be this warfare, there's going to be this strife between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. Seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. Well, we go into the very next story in Genesis chapter 4, and we have Cain versus Abel. We have the seed of the woman. And Cain and Abel, as you know, they go out one day, they offer their sacrifices to God, and what happens? There's one sacrifice, the sacrifice of Abel, that is acceptable worship to God. There is the sacrifice of the worship that Cain gives that's not accepted by God. And Cain becomes angry. And there is, in in the middle of Genesis chapter 4, there's this very poignant moment where God comes to an angry Cain and he says to Cain, there is something crouching at the door of your heart. This anger that you have. He says, you, you, there's this sin that is crouching at your heart and you've got to get a hold of it. You've got to master it. And the really incredible thing about this verse is that in the language of it, it sounds like there is something that is about to grab the heart of Cain. And that word rovis, that is actually the the Hebrew word for crouching, is a word that is associated with demons. What God is saying is that there is, in fact, in the Jewish uh, uh, publication of the first Torah, this verse is translated as, sin is the demon at the door of your heart. What is happening here is that Cain is in spiritual warfare and he doesn't know it. And again, not heeding the truth of God's word as it's spoken to him directly, he ends up killing his brother. And this spiritual warfare begins to spread to other human beings as they succumb to the temptations. You don't go very much further in Genesis before you have this fellow by the name of Lamech who sings a song to his wives, sort of celebrating the fact that he killed a young man who had injured him. And then you keep going in Genesis, and all of a sudden God becomes grieved in his heart that he created man because he sees in man's heart that it's evil inclination from the day of his birth. And that spiritual warfare continues even to our own day. The signs of it are all around. What happens when humans are full of pride and full of hubris? What happens when anger runs out of control among human beings or greed i mean was there such a thing as human trafficking in the garden of eden was there prostitution and the objectifying of of sex and women in the garden of eden i mean that spiritual warfare continues to our own day and we we are living the devastating results of it and this as we saw last week is why the christ came into our world John chapter 3 and verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Which Christ did ultimately in the resurrection, effectively destroying the hold that Satan had on human beings. But you know as well as I do that we still live in this world that is still pre-resurrection. That we still live in a world that is fallen and looks forward to a time in the resurrection when all of this evil and all of the darkness is replaced the presence of God, and with light. And so we live in this meantime. 
this meantime of faith where disciples, you and I, as we worship God and we study His Word and we interact with each other and we pray and we fast and we, we contemplate and, and pray even more about the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven, we understand that as we grow as disciples, we are manifestations of the defeat of Satan by the way that God through His Spirit and through His Word and through a community is reversing the effect of that sin out of our lives. Your life as you grow into Christ's likeness is proof of Satan's defeat. Our struggle against darkness and our wrestling, the Bible talks about wrestling in the flesh, our struggle against darkness is a manifestation of the power of God in human life. And that's why Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6 that our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I mean, one of the things that we have to take seriously in this world is that we are going to be tempted. And that there is going to be an opportune time in which those temptations come toward us that is going to negate or deny or diminish or dilute the presence or the power of God, that witness of God's power in our life when we give in to it. Not only is that spiritual warfare real, but number two, the Bible affirms that our adversary should not be taken lightly. Over and over and over again, the New Testament continually reminds us that Satan is a malignant being, always, always, always in opposition to God. Always in opposition to God. The name Satan itself means adversary. And as an adversary, he is absolutely cunning. And that is one of the reasons why we put on the armor of God. It is to overcome the wiles of the devil. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says something very sobering. He says, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Which means that he is incredibly cunning. And Satan is continually opposed to the gospel as we see and we see this really throughout the life of the Christ, he was able to even infiltrate the, the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. Over there in Matthew chapter 16, what happens there in the region of Caesarea Philippi? He says, who do men think that I am or say that I am? And they tell him, and then he asks them point blank, well, what about you? What do you believe? What do you think about me? Who do you say that I am? And Peter makes this beautiful profession of faith. He says, you know, we believe that you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And then Jesus goes, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And he goes on to say, you know, that, 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 that upon this, this confession, that, you know, the gates of hell are not going to be able to prevail against the onslaught of light. But then he also begins to tell them about the fact that he's going to be a suffering Messiah. And in Peter's mind, that just doesn't compute. And so he says, you know, this is never going to happen. And what is it that Jesus says to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. In Luke chapter 22, we're told that Satan entered into the heart of Judas. There is those last couple of hours before the arrest and the condemnation and the crucifixion take place. That Satan entered into the heart of Judas. 
The name devil itself means slanderer. We know that slander is against the law. We know about libel. We know about slander. We know that slander is wrong. But do we really see how slander, we know it's wrong, we're not supposed to do it, but do we see deeply enough in it to to see how slander damages the work of God? When you begin to slander somebody, what is it that you do? You begin to attack their integrity or their authenticity or the genuineness of that person. The reason you slander somebody is because you don't want that person to be held highly in somebody's esteem. You don't want that person to be trusted you don't want people to rely on that person, so you slander them. And, and slander, when it's believed, when people begin to believe that, you know, the slander that you're spreading about somebody, it dilutes and diminishes that person and the trust and the faith that we have in them. Slandering a person kills our trust in them. And when we begin to believe the slander about God, all it's doing is diminishing faith, the trust and the obedience that we place in the presence of God. That's why Jesus was trying to get the religious leaders that were opposing him, who were, who were succumbing to the, to the temptations in darkness, to believe that he was something other than the Christ. He says to them in John chapter 8, in, in, in a little bit of frustration about their inability to see deeply into who he is, he says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, what does he do? He speaks his native language, for he is a what? A liar and the father of lies. You know, when you read what the Bible has to say about Satan, it's it's just incredibly sobering. The description of the devil in the New Testament is sobering. He is not a cute little devil. Peter describes Satan as as a big, gigantic lion, a a giant cat seeking to kill and to devour. Up here on the screen is a a really sad picture of Yusuf Shabani Difika, who lost both of his arms in a lion attack in the Salu uh, game park in Tanzania. He's part of a poor village, and because of the poverty of that village, there's not a whole lot of land that they've been given to farm, and so they farm the margins next to the Salu game park, and they sometimes are attacked by the lions that are able to get through. And for the rest of his life, he goes through life with the marks of the attack of that lion on his body. And in this picture, his uncle is having to bathe him in the river because of the attack of a lion. What Peter's trying to say is that Satan, and what Jesus says, is that Satan is a murderer. He's a murderer. And that he tries to blind human beings from the transforming power of the gospel that just changes everything in everybody. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And not only does he try to blind our minds to the gospel, he puts up obstacles 
to the message of the gospel being spread. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul did again and again, but whom? But whom, church? Satan blocked our way. Not only is spiritual warfare real, and not only does the Bible teach us that in that spiritual warfare, our adversary, Satan, is not to be taken lightly, but then number three, the Bible celebrates the victory over the adversary. In Genesis chapter 3, death enters into the world because sin has entered into the world. Paul reminds us of this in Romans chapter 6, where the wages of sin are death. But because that's true, Christ came and lived perfectly. He lived without blemish. He lived without sin. The reason that he did this was to get us, was to save us, to rescue us. It was to give us his righteousness by taking on himself our sinfulness. Remember Hebrews chapter 2. Flesh and blood. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him. Christ died to break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Life is different as we live our lives in light of that victory and in anticipation of the world where there will be no sin and therefore no death. But in the meantime, part of our life as a disciple involves resisting Satan. James chapter 4, submit yourselves then to God. And what it means to submit yourself to God is also resisting the devil. It's not just affirming God, but wrestling in the flesh, resisting the devil. It's also relying on the strength that God gives us to overcome Satan. In Ephesians chapter 6, we are to put on the full armor of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. It's about saturating our life with the Word of God. It's about spending time in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's about memorizing Scripture, memorizing it in our head so that it goes all the way down into our heart. In Psalm 119, David says, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. In Matthew chapter 6, we're to pray for God's help. Deliver us from the evil one, Jesus taught us to pray. And then finally, and there are a lot more, but because of time, we'll, we'll end with this one. We are, Hebrews chapter 3, to live in a community of faith where people have our, our best good at the heart of, of, our, of their relationship with us. People that can hold us accountable, people that can see into our heart when we've been blinded to what's happening in our own life to be uplifted and to be encouraged by everybody's singing, by everybody's attendance, by everybody's ministry, by, by the prayers that are offered up on our behalf, by standing beside each other during those, those trips into the valley of the shadow of death where there's nothing but darkness, of that person going into that valley with us and reminding us that it's God who is leading us with his staff and his rod. And so we're told in Hebrews chapter 3, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. 
but encourage one another daily. As long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by what? Sin's deceitfulness. So, really famous Jewish rabbi the past century, a fellow by the name of Martin Buber. Some of you may have written one of his books, um, uh, I and Thou. A very, very famous writer. He was a great storyteller, and he tells this story about two travelers that were going through a dark wood. And there, were, there was no light. It was hard to see the path. There was danger behind all of the trees. And the two strangers were growing more and more fearful as they went along. And then all of a sudden, lightning struck. And the fool stared at the lightning. But the wise one saw the path that was eliminated by the lightning. We sang a song uh, about half an hour ago, Amazing Grace. Old, old song, still one of my favorites. Amazing Grace, right? It's so amazing that God saves us out of this fallenness. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I what? See. And if God's word has been like lightning for you this morning to illuminate the future path of your life, then I say move. Move. We're going to sing a song right now, and if there's a way that our church might minister to you, we're giving you an invitation right now to come down and talk to our shepherds about the ways we might minister to you in this life and on this path that you walk. And for the rest of us, let's stand and let's praise God together. Let's stand and sing with us.